everybody to another episode of the Retro Futurist Culture Podcast. This is your host, Optimus. I am here today with a very special guest. We have the amazing, the illustrious, the audacious Six Button Samurai, aka James himself, here co-host on the show today. We're going to talk about a very, very special film that holds a dear place in our hearts. Uh, the 1987 release of RoboCop uh, at the time polarizing film that was noted for maybe being a little too overly violent, but in retrospect, it's almost become a um, landmark film as in predicting future trends that have gone on since the film was made. Welcome James. How are you doing today? I am great Mikey and I'm really excited to pick this movie apart because um oh you know i as a as a as a kid i had a grandfather who was a world war ii vet and he liked taking me to the movies and he didn't have any sort of qualms about you know at the time i was like 12 and he didn't mind me seeing copious amounts of screen violence because he had seen all kinds of things in the war and he was just like you know like there's some pretty terrible things in this life and you know if you have a level head about it and you sort of take these things head head on you know and remain tied to reality you can you can deal with it but (laughs) at the time you know i had already seen the terminator I had already seen aliens. I had already seen things with really intense, what I thought were really intense amounts of screen violence. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. I can remember seeing the credits come up to RoboCop, which are just in this very stark capital Helvetica font and just feeling completely shocked. Like I was shocked from (laughs) what I experienced on screen like it it rattled me to my core i mean let's uh before we go too deep into that so anybody that hasn't seen the film 1987 film robocop is a story of a police officer who is brutally murdered in a crime and then his body is used by a corporation that is now running the police and turned into a cybernetic cop on duty who's supposed to be like a super cop with no emotion it's gonna crush crime in old detroit so they can make way for a new future city so all the rich people can stay rich if that sounds familiar that's because this movie was way ahead of its time but anyway um similarly james i remember seeing the movie interesting this is gonna be kind of freaky i saw the movie in the gym that I work in now, but at the time it was a movie theater. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and I remember my dad took my brother and I, cause we, we watched all the same, like we had seen aliens and predator and all that stuff. I don't remember which came first, but I think RoboCop was after predator, right? Was predator 87 predator was also in 87, but I'm feeling like it came out earlier in the summer. Okay. I don't remember the details, but I do remember vividly in RoboCop, there's a scene that was so like, I had never seen anything like it. It actually made me kind of sick. And I actually ran out of the theater for a second. Cause I thought I was going to lose my chunks. Cause I was like 11 years old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, Holy crap. Um, but anyway, yeah. So uh, it, it just, it, it was, uh, 
polarizing a little bit mm-hmm. that part of the movie um but so you know we have the base idea of the movie um directed by Paul Verhoeven who's gone on to direct a lot of other really interesting things um what would you say what's his as far as directors go what do you think attracted him to to this film well there's a really interesting story in the making of materials where Paul initially read the script for RoboCop and just based on the title alone he was like what is this trash and his wife actually took a second look at it later and came to Paul and was like you know what Paul like there's actually a lot going on with this script and I think it's more you than you realize and the thing is I think a lot a lot of people in just thinking about the title RoboCop it sounds like your kind of garden variety 1980s like straight to video trash B movie you know um right and the thing was Paul was a very young boy in the middle of World War II, and his city was bombed repeatedly. And so he, at a very young age, not only saw the, you know, the the horrors of fascism and war, but, I mean, with his own eyes, he had very literally seen bodies burning in the streets. So he had he's had these very strong feelings about this kind of thing throughout his entire career. And a lot of his movies deal in very explicit violence and sex. And, you know, he, he definitely is someone that is content to play on the dark side of things. And what's really interesting about this film is it not only takes those things into account, but, it's also an outsider's view of America. And this was somebody looking at the things happening in America in the 1980s under President Reagan and said, wow, like there's some, there's some things that are moving in really strange and wild directions. And, you know, after that sort of prodding by his wife to take a second look at the script, he said, oh, like there's, there's some things that I could really begin to to play with here. Right. And it's it, what, uh, what's really crazy is what was once sort of satire of America. It was a very like exaggerated version is now kind of what America actually is. And it's somewhat depressing that that's what it's come down to. Mm-hmm. Like watching the movie now is like, wow, this isn't too different than what's on the news all the time. Other than we don't have cyborg cops yet, but um, a lot of the other things that happen in that movie. Right. I mean, th- there's a, there's a particular line uttered by um, Ronnie Cox's character. Um, God, why am I miss? Why am I blowing? I can't think of his name. Dick Jones. Dick Jones. At the beginning of the film, when there's this meeting at the Omni Consumer Products Corporation, which is the company that runs the police department, they have this meeting where they unveil what is their first idea for a right. law enforcement robot that ends in this particularly gruesome murder. 
But Enforcement Droid 209. Yep. Ed 209. And one of the things that Dick Jones says that was an unbelievable forecast into the future is when he says, we've gambled on industries traditionally regarded as nonprofit hospitals, space ex- prisons and space exploration. I say good business is where you find it. Oh, and at the time, yeah, that was wow. Um, you know, <laughs> I didn't even catch that. And I just rewatched it the other day. Yeah. I mean, at the time, like, the idea of privatizing those things was kind of a kind of a corporate wet dream, but we very much moved in those directions on all of those fronts. I mean, you've got Elon Musk now with SpaceX, you've got all of these massive conglomerates that run prisons and, you know, hospitals uh, began a transition into private hands much earlier than that, but it's definitely become what's considered a profit center rather than, you know, something altruistic that has to do with people getting healthcare. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an incredible thing to have as this sort of, you know, 33 years ago, just sort of calling that. And it was kind of this hyperbolic goofy thing at the time, but freakishly prescient. Um, applies to a and variety even, of things in RoboCop. Right, even Omni Consumer Products, I mean, that's, uh, you could say that about so many corporations now that are all doing the same thing where they're screwing over everybody to make a profit mm-hmm. for the top 2 3% right. up the chain. Mm-hmm. No, very much so. I mean, essentially, RoboCop is a story about an average guy who is a public servant in the form of a police officer, but he is essentially a cautionary tale about what happens when a government entity that is challenged, that is weak, that has shown some institutional rot meets corporate strength that is inherent on one thing and one thing only and that's its own profit motive right um and that's that's insane um i was watching it watching it again recently for a movie that was made in 1987 it still has really really well done production design Mm -hmm. you know it was supposed to take place in old detroit they actually filmed it in dallas and i actually recognized um something from dallas for rewatching it only because i had been there to see my wife's family and i was like oh hey oh yeah that is dallas Mm -hmm. but it's supposed to be old detroit but even the um other things they add to give the city flavor you know they uh threw in some futuristic stuff on top of the dumpy old parts of the town right Mm -hmm. and and I remember at the time it was interesting to see, you know, they were, they were using Ford, hadn't even released this to the public yet, the Ford Taurus as the futuristic cop cars. And at the time, they did look a lot more futuristic than what most police units were using the classic Ford Crown Victoria, big old boxy thing. So no, you definitely. see this kind of sleek car. And then to contrast that, they had the, um, Again, this is Verhoeven's satire, which kind of actually, if you just changed one letter, predicted the amount of 
SUV envy people have now, but they had that 6,000 SUX mm-hmm. that gets crappy gas mileage right. and is really comfortable. Mm-hmm. And really, if you change it to SUV, yeah, that's where we're at now where people want the biggest, most gas guzzlingest, largest vehicle they can drive around in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the police, uh, for that matter, in the movie are underfunded. And understaffed and they want to go on strike mm-hmm. and the chief is like cops don't go on strike right but the cops are dying left and right until you know we get murphy who gets killed and then he gets turned into robocop and all of a sudden the cops start making gaining ground but as the main plot in the story robocop starts to remember things and he starts to remember who killed him mm-hmm and he starts to track those ga- those guys down systematically. Um, one of the things I noticed right away between the production design and everything too was, and this is something that's in a lot of 80s sci-fi movies, is a strong female character presence. Not like, not like a girly girl or not like a princess, but like we get RoboCop's partner, Lewis, and uh, she's arresting this guy and the chief's like, you know, the guy starts fighting back and she's, she's full on fighting. She roundhouse kicks the guy in the police station. And then the, the chief says, when you're done fucking around with your suspect, I want you to show the new guy. Around. Right, <laughs> right, just, right. I no, that's a, that's a really cool ent- interesting element to the film is that there is this sort of, uh, there's this layer of gender equality. Yes. I was about to say permeates the whole movie. I mean, I can also remember, you know, I was 12 at the time and uh you know at that age uh if you saw boobs in a movie like that was exciting and there's this Even one sweeping shot in the locker room <laughs> yeah. where these two women are like putting on their body armor and one of them Dude, topless I'm, but it's, I'm in my, it's, I'm it's, in it's my absolutely passed right over like it just it happens so fast but it's also seeding this idea that like we've seen Lewis like kick the shit out of a suspect that was fighting back, you know, coming into the precinct. And then these other women that are also griping about the situation overall, like their labor situation and they're both putting on body armor. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that was definitely a thing that like, it just stuck into my brain, like a, like a little thumbtack, like, Whoa, like this is like, there's this unisex locker room and it's just like, no big deal yeah and uh, it's really cool to see that yeah that, that that he had pushed that into the film and like the i mean lewis was just as capable if not more capable than any of the male mm-hmm. cops in the movie and and by the same token the criminals didn't treat her really like she was less of a cop either nope <laughs> they took they took her seriously they're like oh crap this lady's mm-hmm. tough um so we get we get murphy he meets lewis he goes on patrol he's in old detroit and it's a shit show crime is rampant Mm -hmm. um they go chasing some suspects um and uh i we've we've talked about this for many years but the um the guy that plays uh kurtwood smith Kurtwood Smith, who who also plays Red Foreman on that '70s show, mm-hmm. we always have that joke that uh, 
you know, after the seventies, he becomes a criminal and that's how he ends up in uh, <laughs> RoboCop. He decided to take off in the family and became a cocaine dealer in old Detroit. Right. In old Detroit. <laughs> so anyway, him and his little gang are running things mm-hmm. in old Detroit. You know, Peter goes after him. Spoilers ahead. If you have not watched RoboCop, you shouldn't even be listening to this no. podcast. Anyway, yeah, go, just um, go watch it. You know, Murphy and Lewis confront him. Uh, they both get Lewis gets knocked out early and then Murphy is systematically butchered <laughs> butchered yeah like there's no other they, way to put it I mean it was hands down the most shocking screen death I had ever seen to that point it's still pretty up there as far as the audacity of the scene mm-hmm. like First, he, I mean, he takes a, sh- a shotgun and blows his hand off, and it just explodes. Mm-hmm. It explodes. The whole hand just disappears. Right. right? It's and, this very visceral, old school, you know, in camera physical effect. Yeah. And it's nauseating still, it, to look at. It really holds up. That's the scene where I was a kid. I was like, what, what is this? I'm losing my stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also their attitudes. While they're doing yeah. it, I mean, this they is have like, no qualms they, about it. They like, are they are thrilled. Like this is a day at the park for them. I was like, gonna say it's like it's like a baseball game. Mm-hmm. They're just like dun dun dun. Right. No, I think they even use sports metaphors. Yeah, in that's the middle right. Of that. Yeah. Of course, Clarence also he's kind of like he's weirdly obsessed with sports actually because he even refers to the Tigers later on. Well, if you're in Detroit, that's right. pretty. That's all. That's all you could look at to at the time, right? Um, but also of note is where this execution takes place. It takes place in a giant, rusted out steel mill. And right. Murphy's death almost feels like a metaphor for the death of manufacturing in the United States or, or a death of like the average Joe's chances. American manufacturing. And yeah, that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's good, man. I didn't <laughs> even think of that. So they, they kill Murphy or he's not dead, dead, but he's, uh, he's, he's hanging on to life by a thread by nothing. The, right. It, it has to do with, he's still got all of his body armor on. But they've blown off a hand, then they blow off his arm. And yeah, and they shoot him in the leg, too. Right, they, <laughs> they shoot it. I mean, literally, you're talking like dozens of shotgun blasts from four men at close range. Like, it's the most ridiculous, over-the-top, and completely gruesome gun murder, I'd argue, you know, outside of, like, you know, something from The Raid or Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, it's really, yeah, it's really and, brutal. But that's his passage, right? Mm-hmm. That's his, his trial by fire. Mm-hmm. That happens. The next scene, um, and this, I noticed this right away where, um, you know, he gets put on a, Lewis wakes up because she only got knocked out. The guy, the guy hits her and she falls down. He thinks she's dead because she fell down mm-hmm. quite a ways, but she landed on some garbage and she's a lot tougher than she looks. She gets up, she gets Murphy, they go to the hospital, and uh, it has the classic 
what kind of lens is that? They use that really wide angle, almost like a fisheye lens in all the hospital scenes where everybody like the the view's really weird Mm -hmm. and they keep trying to resuscitate him. I mean, I think from this point on for like the next 10 minutes, the whole movie is from uh, Peter's eyes, but we're seeing it kind of first person, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're experiencing him sort of dying he, he well that's the uh, thing he's conscious but he's really far away from everything yeah he flatlines and then the next scene is and you can tell something has changed because when he he slash we wake up we weren't we aren't where we were we now have like better vision and you can hear things and he's obviously been turned into something else mm-hmm. and you hear them talking and uh you know, you hear a woman say, I was able to save an arm. And he's like, I don't, I didn't want the arm. What do you want? And he talks to the guy. He's like, what do you think? Should we keep the arm? And he's like, well, technically he's our product. So if you don't want the arm, we can get rid of it. And he's like, lose the arm. Right. Right. Well, also <laughs> in that, the moment Murphy wakes up, it's from this vantage point that we've never seen before. It's this weird crystal clear but slightly pixelated yeah yeah video that's what i meant the, the vision the vision changes yes mm-hmm. yes we have scan lines right <laughs> and uh, yeah i mean immediately you're just like well what is this because literally the last thing you hear is the doctor calling murphy's time of death yeah and the entire screen goes and black line, and it goes silent line. for right. a moment and then when he wakes up it's like this you hear a boot. You hear a boot yeah, sequence, and it, and and it flickers to life like a like mm-hmm. a monitor being turned on. Hey, this is Charlie Triple C from Brevity Box, a new and interesting podcast from the Ruminations Radio Network. If you're a fan of podcasts, we have a lot of great content to offer. Come check out our diverse group of podcasts and hosts at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Yeah, and that's our transformation, mm-hmm. right? All of a sudden, um, Murphy wakes up, but he's not Murphy anymore right now, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what he is. Uh, he's he's His programming is running the show, and he's unveiled to, to the public and the police department. They're calling him RoboCop. He's a product. He's made by Dick Jones's... Um, rival at ocp bob morton bob morton who who you know he's a young exec who's gunning for for a top position mm-hmm. um and all of this the the intertwined plot is really really well done and it, the interesting thing is i i read this to the original inspiration for robocop came from another of both of our favorite movies, the guy that wrote the screenplay for RoboCop original version was inspired by Blade Runner, mm-hmm. <laughs> who was sort of a cop who hunts Android. And he's like, well, what if we make an Android that, that hunts criminals? Mm-hmm. And he took the thing and flipped it around. Um, I thought that was really cool. And uh, throughout all of this, besides the amazing direction, production design, great script, good acting, we also have something else that really holds this movie together, and that's that soundtrack by uh, Basil Palladoris, who also scored one of my other favorite movies, Conan the Barbarian. He does such a good job of making the music sound futuristic, but it's not... 
I don't know quite how to explain. Well, there's this sort of industrial motif that runs through it. Like there's this, yeah. there's this clanging of hammers that sort of drives the music. Like it's, it's, it's more like the, the rhythm of it sounds like gears and hammers colliding in this industrial manner. And even at the very outset of it, you know, it doesn't start with the RoboCop theme. It starts with something no, that right. sounds like it comes more from a horror film. Yeah. Like true. it's just sort of we are, you know, you enter by way of this aerial shot gliding over the real Detroit, actually. Right. Um, and it gives way to this RoboCop logo that has this sort of static flicker. And then from there, we immediately go into the satirical media break segment, which in itself really forecasted like where cable news would go. I mean, at this time, CNN was still in its relative infancy. There weren't a half dozen cable news channels. There wasn't headline news, which is just the day's news repeated every 30 minutes. It was much more like your era of three networks doing the news but it even sort of saw that kind of rapid fire like news right. broken up in these wonder. little nuggets of things yeah and similar around the same time actually a year before robocop hit the theater 1986 frank miller's dark knight returns hit comic book stores mm -hmm. the graphic novel and frank miller did a very similar thing and i don't know if it was just the feeling and and, and dark knight returns itself is almost a satire in the same way of robocop they almost have a similar story and that's probably why they recruited frank to write the sequel but we'll get into that maybe some other time not today <laughs> um but the way that the news is presented in The Dark Knight and in RoboCop is almost identical. And it's kind of scary because that's exactly how the news is now. Mm -hmm. Like if you watch any of those cable news networks for 15 minutes, you feel bombarded with just stuff. And like you feel almost stressed out right. like watching it. Like what, what just happened well, to me? Did I get shot? It's basically a fire hose <laughs> of information. And the thing that makes it even more dangerous is that we have all of these channels now that come with their own specific ideological bent. So whatever yes. it is, you know, wherever it is you fall on the political spectrum, um, you know, there's a specific channel for you that'll keep you sort of safe and happy and in your own bubble. The film doesn't really exhibit that, but there's also a very strange and darkly funny moment where at the very beginning media break, we learn that an officer has been gravely injured in a shootout and is in critical condition. And at that moment, the network anchor breaks and just says, good luck, Frank. Right. And, it, and it's really like, that was super unsettling at the time. Cause I was like, God, like this is really, really, really like unbelievably jaded. But I mean, sad to say, once again, it really sort of saw where things were going. Yeah. <laughs> and so then we, you know, um, when uh, one of the things that's neat, too, is how they link how Lewis sort of finds out for sure who RoboCop is, is when she's first with Murphy, he does this gun twirling thing. And she's like, where did you pick that up? And he's like, oh, my kid watches this show, TJ Laser, blah, blah, blah. Mm hmm. 
And she remembers that because later on when RoboCop shows up at the police station, they're at the firing range and all the cops are freaking out. They're like, this guy's gun's crazy. It's and the first time they've seen him and they're yeah. just tripping the fuck out on him. So when he finishes at the firing range, even though he doesn't remember he's Murphy, all of his muscle memory in his brain remembers things. And he does the, the gun twirl trick and his gun actually comes out of his bionic leg and it goes back in and, and uh, Lewis knows that or she has a suspicion that that's who it is mm-hmm. and it's kind of cool. And, and we, as the audience get to see how she pieces it together while he pieces it together. Cause he starts going after, you know, he starts going after crime. And while he's going after crime, he of course runs into Clarence Boddicker's gang members. Uh, and the first one, you know, the guy says, we killed you, mm-hmm. you know, so he records it and he looks up, he comes back to the station and they're like, you can't do that. And he jacks into the computer, scans, finds the guy and starts to go after them. Right. It's at this moment where he's beginning to disregard his programming because his memories of self are beginning to creep Are in. overriding. Yeah. Right. And he's just, there. he's beginning to just hunger for well, what the hell was I? What happened to me? What happened to my family? I mean, he has visions of his wife and his child. Um, I think this leads us to two things. You know, number one, it's an unbelievable performance by Peter Weller. Dude, amazing. was absolutely obsessive about, you know, developing the these mime movements yeah, yeah, that yeah. would inform his... Um, his sort of body language and the way he completely yeah, the way sells he, this idea. He turns, the way he turns his body and his shoulders, mm-hmm. it doesn't move. Like he moves more like he was a robot that didn't have a curving spine like we do. Like right. he, he's more like an action figure when he moves. And that was, yeah, it really sells it. It really sells it. But also, he also that suit weighed a crap load of weight. <laughs> if I remember correctly, he said it was very hard to move in that. I thing. would argue that that suit designed by Rob Bottin, who, you know, is legendary for his work on The Thing and a right. ton of other movies. That's coming up on an RFC episode that, sometime soon also. Totally worth <laughs> it. That suit may be the most, in my humble opinion, it may be the most impressive costume that I've ever seen on film. It's pretty awesome. Unless you see the cheap knockoff one that they used to show at the uh, world of <laughs> Wheels car show. Cause that guy didn't look anything as good as the movie. I was so disappointed as like a 12 year old kid. I was like that, that doesn't look like Robocop. That guy looks like a guy in a crappy plastic suit. Right. Um, back to, so back to the movie and, um, uh, the other thing that's really kind of neat, and uh, this is kind of a Verhoeven staple. He does this again in Starship Troopers. He doesn't do it in all of his movies, but there's these satirical ads for like crazy board games and that crazy game show where that guy buys something for a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's it's very interesting. And it's also something that they kind of, Frank Miller did something similar and Alan um, Moore in Watchmen does something sort of similar. And I, like all of these people were really looking at satirically what's going on with America, right? What's going on politically. Mm-hmm. And it's all kind of come to pass. It's kind of scary that all of this stuff is really 
And that's kind of the whole theme of this podcast is looking at these things and seeing like, what were, what were they trying to tell us at the time that most of the public totally missed? Some of us, I think, got it. I was too young to understand it then. I think 10 years later when I was in my 20s, I really understood that movie a lot better. Yeah, I mean, as a boy, I was just completely rocked by it. I was right. rocked by how dark and funny and just audacious this movie was um and i didn't completely wrap my head around everything but in the ensuing years with repeated viewings you know it's become terrifying it's how, definitely how clear uh, they saw w- where things were headed yeah and it's definitely one of those movies there's some movies that you can watch one time and you're probably fine mm-hmm. right yeah i think there's certain movies that there's layers to them and this is definitely one of those movies that hits you first. It's almost like the shock layer the first time you see it, <laughs> the second time you see it. And the more times you watch it, the more you pick up on these subtle clues about our humanity, not only just in what makes us human, because what makes, you know, what redeems Robocop as a character, he remembers who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, he goes after the criminals. And at one point, like, at one point, he wants to murder Clarence Boddicker, right? But mm-hmm. he knows he has to. He, when he finally catches Boddicker, I'm going to, you know, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. And he takes him in. He beats the crap out of him. Mm-hmm. And that's when we learn that the entire time that Clarence Boddicker was working for Dick Jones from OCP. Mm-hmm. And Dick Jones has Boddicker take out Bob mm-hmm. and gets rid of Bob so that he can have Clarence Boddicker get rid of RoboCop because now RoboCop knows the truth because he's got all the video recordings from Clarence's gang, Clarence himself. So at this point, you know, RoboCop goes after um, Dick Jones and RoboCop had a uh, prime directives. He had three, serve the public trust, protect the innocent and uphold the law. And he goes after Dick Jones and all of a sudden he almost goes into like a convulsion. He can't do anything. And he didn't know about a hidden directive Four is that he can't arrest members of uh, OCP. Mm-hmm. And Any attempt to arrest a company officer will result in immediate shutdown. Shutdown. Right. So, um, which it so leads then, to a very, a very, very clever resolution in the OCP boardroom, which we probably shouldn't completely give away. No, um, well, well, hold on, you're skipping ahead a little bit. So yeah. he, 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 Robocop gets out of there, and then he's hunted down. Dick Jones calls the police, and the police come and they hunt him down. But Lewis comes, and um, she barely Robocop saves his hands. ass because she he's getting hammered. Him. Yeah, he's getting shot up pretty bad. They go back to the steel, the same steel mill where Peter was first murdered. Mm-hmm. And she helps him do some repair to his suit. And he takes off. And this is the point where he becomes Peter again. He takes off the helmet. It's a very um, representational scene. He unscrews the helmet and we see his face. Because like, mm-hmm. all we could see was like from his mouth and his chin. We Just couldn't see his on. nose. Or, yeah. So we see his face again. And... Um, Lewis helps him recalibrate his sights because they got all beat up and they come up with a plan 
unbeknownst to them, you know, Dick Jones gives Boddicker the tracker to track down RoboCop and gives Dick Jones or uh, gives Boddicker and his gang a bunch of those really powerful military grade weapons. The Cobra assault rifle, state of the art, bang, bang. To go after uh, RoboCop. And uh, and this is another part where it had some really gory, goofy stuff. I know Mitch. Mitch was talking about the scene where the one guy gets hit with the toxic waste and he's yes. like, help me. And he's all bloated and disgusting looking. Yeah. And he then, goes full on toxic Avenger before he goes splat. Right. And then Boddicker hits him with the, the 6,000 SUX. Um, so they go after RoboCop. He gets all of them. Just going to skip to that. And then he goes back to OCP to get, to show evidence to the chief officer of OCP, the old man. And uh, Dick Jones loses it there. And then Murphy finishes the situation. I won't spoil what happens there mm-hmm. for those of you. Uh, but then the old man asks him, what's your name, son? <laughs> and he says, Murphy. And at that point, we know that he's back to being Murphy. He's regained his humanity at least in what would be his soul. He's, he's, he's regained what's left of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives a little bit of hope and a much. That's the thing. I mean, it's an incredibly dark Trek yet. Yeah. Um, we are left with this idea that if we stop being machines and remember who right. we are as people, there is and hope. compassion. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also just there's a number of great little tidbits. Um, didn't Phil Tippett do the stop motion animation for Ed Two Hundred Nine? Same guy that did yes, the stuff did. on Empire Strikes Back mm-hmm. for the Tauntauns and whatnot. So there's a great part, and this they have to have played homage to this in Borderlands Two. But there's a great part when Ed Two Hundred Nine can't go on stairs. Mm-hmm. He's trying to. <laughs> he just tries to go on the stairs and he falls down. And I feel like right. there's a scene in Borderlands two where claptraps like stairs stairs <laughs> i feel like that was their little nod to uh ed 209 yes um real quick before we wrap this up and um give a little shout out to your project here in a minute but we have a couple questions one from mr mitch from ruminations from the red room he asks if he is part machine and part man and all cop, which side does he land on during Judgment Day? And how would Skynet view Murphy? So if there was a crossover between <laughs> Terminator, and that's why I'm glad you're on here. Which there was. Even though there were comic books, <laughs> there was a right? comic book and, and a video, video game. game. <laughs> right. Even though I love Terminator, I know that you know far more about Terminator than I do. Um, that would be interesting. I would think that Skynet would view him as a threat. I think no Skynet would still view him as a threat because even though he's part machine, he's not part of Skynet. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. So it would Skynet. just be discarded as like human trash slash rival product. So they, yep. you know, they'd, they'd, uh, they'd hunter kill his ass. Um, Sith from the tag discord said he thinks that Skynet would just get rid of his human part of him. But I feel like you, I think they would probably just decide to scrap robocop all together and get rid of him it'd be more efficient to just wipe the map with them yeah, yeah. or nuke the site from morbid mm-hmm. <laughs> um anyway so uh wrapping up robocop 
amazing film, way ahead of its time. Little on the violent side. <laughs> a little. But it's, but, but it's not without its merits. And, and Well, that's like the thing. Said, I mean, the violence in RoboCop, it's not, you know, th- this is in the middle of the 1980s action heyday. I mean, literally Predator came out the same year. But none of the violence in RoboCop really comes off as like, exciting or enthralling in the way that you read it in conventional action films. I mean, like I said, I mean, Murphy's execution is a genuinely sickening moment. It is. And there's a variety of incidents in this that do not feel good to look at. Um, The only time that we're sort of cheering is when, you know, we want Murphy to survive. We want That's Murphy about- to figure out who he is. And we, you know, we would like to see him get some small measure of vengeance over the gang. But it's it's far more in the parlance of character rather than like, you know, watching an episode of like G.I. Joe or Transformers. No, exactly. You know? Yeah, it, it, it it's not without its service and i think it's meant to almost disgust you at how far we can go at hurting and killing each other mm-hmm. you know and then like the redemption and um yeah it's a, it's a very powerful movie like i said it, it's a layered movie on the surface if you just watch it without paying any attention you're just going to find it a violent science fiction trope mm-hmm. uh but it's a lot deeper and i think that Verhoeven's really clever at layering that stuff. He may not even know how clever he was at layering that stuff, but I think he does. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the striking thing that I didn't pick up on for a long time, um, in an interview, he sort of said that he came to regard Alex Murphy slash RoboCop as like uh, this cybernetic American Jesus. And I never really noticed it until later on. But I mean, literally at the steel mill towards the end, the finale of the big shootout takes place in this sort of area that's yeah. been drenched by water. Yeah. And literally there's a moment where Robocop basically walks Com- on yeah, water. He- right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great scene. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Um, so I just wanted to uh, throw a shout out to you for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, of and course, for having me. I also wanted to ask you a few questions about your upcoming project for the Ruminations mm-hmm. Collaborative, uh, the Six Button Samurai. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about this project and what, what we're going to be talking about with the Six Button Samurai. Well, if you grew up with retro games you know by retro i mean the atari 2600 the nintendo entertainment system and the arcade games of that era um you know retro gaming is kind of having an incredible renaissance moment right now i mean there's actually more like versions of older consoles that are built on new school technology being released now than there ever have been. Um, And my 
take on this particular kind of thing is that I think um, sometimes the retro gaming hobby is just sort of taken at face value. Like, oh, you miss playing Pac-Man and Super Mario because those things remind you of when you were a kid. And I think, yes, to a certain extent, they are. But I think if you sort of take a look back at those things and sort of identify, like, the people you knew at the time or the people that, you know, you might have met in an arcade or, you know, along your journey as a young person sliding into adulthood, that these things can sort of function as, like, tree rings when you look back at how you grew up how you learn to deal with other people, how you learn to sort of manage the money in your own pocket when you're like, okay, I've got 10 bucks. It's going to cost me a dollar each way on the bus to go to the mall to play street fighter two for a while. And maybe I'll get a slice of pizza as well. Like there's all these weird sort of formative lessons that I think are embedded in that journey. So I'm going to be taking a personal look at some of the things that I experienced kind of, coming up with this as a focus in my life and the thing is called ruminations of a six button samurai and so i'm working on that at the moment and you know i'm sure at some point i'll have mike here as a guest on that and some of the other ruminations. i can't wait man i i i foresee plenty of crossover between our two shows definitely (laughs) uh there's definitely a few games that are uh, that definitely fit both of our themes i think that would be really fun to do those together oh show that's awesome all right let's close this buddy out thank you for listening to the retro futurist culture podcast if you enjoy this podcast please like and subscribe on your podcast distributor of choice please like the other rumination of the red room family podcast check us out at ruminationsradio.com we have lots of content coming up lots of great stuff Thanks again. Thank you, Six Button Samurai, a.k.a. James. It's always a pleasure. Always, Mikey. Let's roll on out of here. Peace. Retro Futures Culture is a production of Ruminations Radio Network, home for all your wildest worlds and favorite stuff. Please rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get your favorite shows. Thank you, and have a nice day.